I wonder this morning, um, when was the last time that you felt like a stranger? A year ago, more than a year ago, a few months ago, something more recently than that? This morning, when you wandered into church, when was the last time? You know, one of my most vivid recollections of feeling like a stranger, for me anyway, goes back uh, about 26 years ago, not quite 26, almost, to June something, 1981, I don't remember the exact date, when with almost everything I owned packed in the back of my 1979 blue Honda Civic, I set out for Berrien Springs, Michigan, where in a week or two I was going to be starting classes at seminary at Andrews University. The three days I took getting there actually were kind of an adventure. I'd never driven across the country before, and it was kind of fun to see a lot of places that I'd never seen and kind of just drive out in the road and not really know where you were going except for what the map said. But once I got there, the realization that I was now more than 2,000 miles from the nearest person I knew or that knew me started to really settle down on me quite heavily. I had no address. I didn't have a phone number. People didn't carry cell phones in those days. I didn't have any of those things that give you a sense that you belong anyplace. If somebody had wanted to contact me, there was no way for them to do that. They had no idea how they would, get, they would find me. At school, spring classes were already over and summer classes had not yet begun, and so there was really not very many people around at Andrews. And in any case, there was going to be no student, new student orientation until the fall, so either way it went, I was pretty much on my own to figure out where things were and what I was going to have to do to figure out how this whole place worked. But I had reserved a room in single student graduate housing, which I had heard people refer to as the monks' quarters. And really, that should have been my first clue, because when I finally found where this was, and then found somebody who had opened up the building to let me in and saw the room for the first time and this attached thing that they called the community kitchen. It only took me a few moments to conclude that I was probably going to be better off living in my car. And so that first day I decided I would circle back to Motel 6, kind of regroup there, and we'd try this again the next day. This definitely was not working. I, I understand that things probably have changed a bit since I was there. It's been a long time ago, but... It was pretty bleak at that time. Well, the next day I found a basement room for rent in town, which is a nice place, not far from the school. And I began the process of getting settled in to this new place, truly feeling very much like a stranger in a strange land, which was a sense that only deepened as I began to experience the culture shock of going from being a youth pastor in an Orange County beach community where you could actually find Mexican food, to a single graduate student in a Midwestern town driving a foreign car with California plates, none of which, I learned quickly, were considered to be particularly positive traits by the people who lived there. The seminary community itself, of course, was a little more welcoming, although, at the time anyway, I don't know if this has changed, people from California particularly people from Southern California, were still considered to be somewhat outside the norms. 
and they were kind of regarded with sort of raised eyebrows whenever you went anywhere. Talk about feeling like a stranger in a strange land. I really did. Adele Gonzalez, in an article she wrote for Weavings a number of years ago, uh, listed three characteristics of what it's like to be a stranger. And I just thought I would share these with you. First, she says, there is a sense that somehow you just don't belong here. And it's a sense that doesn't entirely go away, even if you are welcomed. Second, there's the sense that you are, and probably always will be, a minority. There is a larger, more powerful group that will be setting the standard for what is considered normal and acceptable here, and that's just the way it is. And third, even though you may have a place to stay, it still feels like your real home is somewhere else. And those of you who have immigrated here or come here from other parts of the world and have had to become a part of this culture probably have a pretty good feel of what that's like and what it means to try to feel at home in a place that doesn't feel at home. And while those characteristics certainly don't capture all that's involved in feeling like a stranger, I think they still ring pretty true to at least part of what that's about. Which is of interest to me this morning, at least for my purposes here, because of the seriousness with which the scriptures take not only the experience of what it means to be a stranger, but even more than that, the experience of receiving and extending welcome, something that lies at the very heart of what the life of people of the kingdom are supposed to be all about. For the past couple of weeks, if you've been with us here at uh, Calamisa, we've been building on some insights from John chapter 15, so we've talked about this series of Life on the Vine. And at the outset of all of this, Pastor Chris reminded us that this all revolves around connecting with Jesus and then abiding or remaining connected to Jesus. And that as we remain there from the life that grows out of that, certain recognizable patterns of life begin to emerge. And they're summarized in our mission statement that you'll find printed right there on the front of your bulletin this morning as loving one another and then serving and bearing witness in our world. And those we have said are things that we are both intentional about and are things that kind of spring out of what it means to be connected with Jesus. You can expect this to happen. And there are also things that we have been referring to for the past couple of weeks as manifestations of spiritual practices. We've been talking about spiritual practices. Two weeks ago, Pastor Chris talked about the practice of silence as one of the ways we can create space in the midst of our cluttered, busy lives so that we can be more attentive to God and to other people. Last week, Pastor Dan talked about the practice of forgiveness, a pattern of life that cuts clean across the grain of much of what has become considered to be normal in our world today, a practice that we have a very difficult time with, especially in a world for the idea that uh, redemption can somehow come through violence or power or domination or that justice involves vilifying others and seeking retribution. Instead, he explored with us a bit last week what Jesus both taught and modeled, something that grows out of remaining with him and something that we're also invited to be intentional about in the way that we live. But what I'd like to consider with you this morning and invite you to join me with or join me in considering, 
is a practice that, more than you might realize at first, goes to the very heart of the experience of what it means for us to be together as people in a community here and what it means to be present in the world around us. It's a practice that is all bound up with the whole idea of what it means to be a stranger. But even more than that, what it means to genuinely experience and extend welcome. It's a way of living and relating to people which is often described as the practice of hospitality, which is unfortunate in a way (laughs) because that term, hospitality, has suffered so much erosion over the years that when I say it now, the images and pictures it brings to your mind doesn't even come close to what is embodied in what the scriptures are talking about. It's only a faint shadow of the pattern that we find woven all through the fabric of scripture and which in fact formed the foundation of what it was that made God's people unique and special. Well, if we just open our Bibles and start reading this morning, we begin to see this emerging once we have eyes to look. Within just the first four chapters of our Bible, you see the story of the transformation of a very welcome, hospitable world into a place that in very profound ways no longer feels like home to anyone. Relationships with God became strained. Relationships with each other started to go bad, go sideways. There were long-term consequences for what that would look like and the way men and women would relate to each other. Things began to go very poorly. When you look at what happened to our world as a result, things began to not go the way God had intended. And as people gave in to fear and into their desire to protect their own interests, even at the expense of others, it also became a place marked by violence and danger. In fact, historians tell us that in the ancient world in general, the practice of hospitality, which included not only providing food and shelter and just resources to people who are passing through, also safe passage to each other, was not only a part of what was needed to survive in that kind of a world, but it was considered pretty much across cultures as a moral responsibility. Hospitality was not just something nice you did after church for lunch. It was the basis of how people got along and lived together. But when we see it expressed in the lives of God's people, it takes on even more significance. There are some really neat things that begin to surface as we watch and see the way this is played out in Scripture. Probably the best known of the Old Testament stories where we get a really good glimpse of hospitality as it begins to surface is found in Genesis chapter 18. We won't take the time to look up all these stories and read them this morning, but I want to reference them for you in case you want to spend some time with them later. They're great stories. In this story, you find Abraham sitting out in the shade of his front yard one day, and uh, he looks up and he sees three strangers approaching. And so, in harmony with the customs and culture of his day, instead of asking them what they want and sort of encouraging them to move on, he welcomes them into his home. He treats them with honor as special guests. He invites them to stay and be refreshed. And he prepares a meal for them out of the best of what he had. It's a pretty incredible response when you think about it. And if you have ever been a stranger traveling in a foreign place or a place that's not familiar to you, then you know what an incredible gift that kind of hospitality can be. 
when you're welcomed into a setting in which you are not treated as somehow not quite as deserving as the rest of us, or simply a project that you need to kind of take care of, but rather with the honor and dignity of family. It's an incredible gift when you get to experience that. Some of you got to be on the Spanish trip this last week, experienced a little of that as students from Mesa Grande were welcomed into homes of people in Ensenada. It's kind of a neat experience to be a part of. But there's something else you see in this story as it goes on, because you'll remember that in the midst of practicing hospitality, God winds up showing up in a way that Abraham had not anticipated, unexpected and special ways that God shows up in the midst of this practice. Well, as we go on through scripture, we find, of course, that there are other stories. 1 Kings 17 and 18 tell the story of Elijah, who travels to this town one day during a time of famine and finds a woman who has just barely enough food for she and her son to have one more meal before they die, as she thought. Elijah asks her for food, and the woman takes what she has left and offers it to Elijah. And the story goes on to talk about how God blessed that act of hospitality, not only by making sure her supplies didn't run out that day, but by sustaining her all through the time of the famine. Second Kings 4 tells the story of Elisha, who goes to the home of a Shunammite woman and is provided with food and a place to stay and an ongoing kind of place that he could take advantage of whenever he was traveling through town. And it tells the story of how she, too, experienced God's presence and blessing in remarkable and powerful ways through taking part in this practice of hospitality. And there are also stories in the Old Testament where acts of inhospitality are used to reveal patterns of life that God definitely was not blessing. You think about the reception of strangers when they came to Sodom one day, where Lot was still there. You think about David's encounter with Nabal. But it's after the experience of the children of Israel having been slaves in Egypt and then with God having graciously brought them out that an even deeper level of significance begins to emerge. And you see how this pattern of relating to people and this way of living becomes embedded not only in their lives, but in their laws as well. Notice how this is written here in Exodus 23, verse 9. Listen to what it says. Do not oppress an alien or stranger, for you yourselves know what it feels like to be aliens, because you were aliens in the land of Egypt. Because from their own experience, they knew what it was like to be a stranger somewhere, and they knew what it was like to be treated as if you were somewhat less than. They were not free to treat themselves or to allow anyone else to be treated in that manner ever again. They were to remember where they had come from and the blessings they now enjoyed, that all of those things were not matters of entitlement, but they were gifts of grace. And then they were to act like they remembered that. In this regard, it was the things that made them the same that were to take priority over the things that made them different. Listen to how this is further spelled out in another place where the law is mentioned in Leviticus 19.33. I want you to catch how deeply embedded this is here. When an alien lives in your land, do not mistreat him. The alien living with you must be treated as one of your native born. Love him as yourself. For you were aliens in Egypt, 
I am the Lord your God. At the very heart of the practice of hospitality, as it's expressed here and in other places, is the ability to identify with the experiences of others and to realize that their experience is your experience. And in a very real sense, because of that, our experience then should be theirs. Hospitality insists that insiders do not have privileges over outsiders. And in fact, the text finishes by saying, for I am the Lord your God, which I guess is God's way of saying, end of discussion. This is not negotiable. The implications for that are very intriguing, and uh, you can work those all out later. Interestingly enough, though, when we turn to the New Testament, we discover that the New Testament opens with a hospitality story. We find Mary and Joseph arriving from Bethlehem, bearing the soon-to-be-born Savior, only to discover when they arrive there that there is no room for them. No one has a place. It's interesting that in Hispanic and Latino cultures around the world, every year at Christmas time, there is a celebration called Posada, a word that means shelter. As I understand how this works, and those of you with uh, the right background can correct me if I don't get this quite right, each night for eight days, a couple portraying Joseph and Mary visit various homes, various inns around their village or their town. They go seeking shelter. And each night as they go to these places, there's a chorus of voices that answer back to them saying, move on, there is no room for you here. Until finally on the ninth night, the innkeeper, moved by the request of Joseph now, offers the young couple all that he has left, a stable. And then this little community, having remembered together what it is to be both rejected and welcomed, and that it is through welcoming strangers that the most incredible gift in all the world was once received, the stable is transformed into a place of celebration, and they have their Christmas celebration there, Posada. It's a very intriguing festival that they celebrate, and one that sets us up for the realization that, in reality, when you look at the life of ministry of Jesus, it is one huge embodiment of this practice of hospitality. Or perhaps better stated, it's from the life and ministry of Jesus that the practice of hospitality actually emerges so we can see it fully for what it really is. And as it does, we find this curious thing as we watch the way Jesus portrays this for us. Because we find that Jesus takes on a dual role of both host and of guest. As host, you see Jesus inviting to a place at his table not only those who would have been thought of as the rightful citizens of the kingdom, but also those who had been marginalized as well. The strangers and the aliens those who didn't belong there. He told stories of banquets in which those who had a greater sense of their own entitlement than a realization of grace that had been extended to them refused to come, while others who were more responsive, the poor, the blind, the lame, the stranger, found ample space around his table. You find Jesus providing food to 5,000 after a day of teaching, and of providing healing both to those who were thought to be deserving of his attention 
and those who are thought not to be deserving of that privilege. As a gracious host, Jesus invites any who would to come and to find rest and refreshment, a place of shelter and belonging and of being at home with him and in the community that he had started. But the New Testament scriptures also go on to tell us that not only is Jesus present as host, but he is also present among us as guest. As in the festival of Posada, and as you find reflected in Revelation 3.20, a text that Adventists have known well for a long time, Jesus also comes to us as one who stands at the door and knocks. He doesn't force his companionship upon us. He waits to be invited, to be welcomed into our homes, as Martha and Mary found themselves welcoming Jesus into theirs, sometimes to share meals with the tax collectors and sinners, for which he was heavily criticized by the more proper members of his community. Or as two discouraged disciples discovered one Sunday afternoon as they were making their way home to Emmaus after a particularly rough weekend, it is often in extending hospitality to those we might otherwise regard as strangers that God shows up in unexpected and very powerful ways. Or finally, as Jesus himself says when he's talking to his disciples about the final judgment, when people ask, Lord, when did we do all this to you? He replies, when you did it to the least of these, when you did it to the least of these, you did it to me. When we allow our sense of entitlement to give way to the realization of grace and the common experience that we all share with everybody, not just those who are like us, and we begin to see past our own interests and as difficult as it is, sometimes past our own political and economic ideologies, and maybe at times even past our own self-righteousness. And we begin to look others in the eyes as people, as children of the same God, remembering or imagining what it's like to be where they are, or at least willing to listen so we can try to understand we begin to see things differently. And things look very differently. And it is then, and I'm not sure it's much before then, no matter how many dinner parties we have thrown or how many meals we've planned or how many church committees we have sat on, it is then that we begin to enter into the practice of hospitality. You know, if Jesus were preaching today, I can't help but wonder what kind of stories he might tell to us in our setting, in our culture, that might help us just get a glimpse of what it is he was trying to get at in his ministry. I'd like to invite you just to watch and listen as our drama team this morning provides maybe what one of those stories might have looked like. Let's see what they have. My name is Mary Pat, and I live just a few blocks away from here. I handle the books for my husband's business. It's not the most thrilling job in the world, but I can do it out of the second bedroom in our apartment. It saves us money and allows me the freedom to do things I like. I really enjoy walking in the park and feeding the ducks and other birds, watching them, so fearful at first, inch their way closer and closer. I really like the The park. The park is my refuge and oasis. 
from corporate America. I'm Jean, and I work on the 23rd floor of that building. I'm in the insurance business, and I deal with people and their problems all day long. That's why I need the park. I like to watch people, especially people that don't need something from me. People who push their children on the swing, feed the ducks. I eat my lunch here nearly every, every day. day. I'd watch that woman feed the ducks and other birds, and I'd think to myself, if I could just get my hands on that bread. I'm Rachel, and I live on the streets. I was hungry, and what those ducks was getting, oh, it was looking so good. So one day, I just made a run for it, and I called out, but the girl was gone, running into the trees with a, a bag, bag of, of bread crust. It was more than I'd had in the past two days. I, was I wasn't hungry. hungry anymore after what I'd just seen. It, it could have been, been your purse, purse, my husband said. He didn't want me to go back to the park for a while, but I couldn't stop thinking about that girl. I had to know if she was trying to steal my purse or if she was just hungry. So I went, I back. went back to the park the next day without my purse, of course. The woman there was there again with a bag of bread feeding the ducks. Brave soul or careless, I thought. An, An easy, easy target, target, I thought, as I watched the woman from across the street. I didn't see no cops around, and I'm a pretty fast runner. So I snuck up from behind the trees again, and whoosh! Out of nowhere, she shoved me into the park bench and ripped the bag from my hand. I saw her this time. She was just a child, a teenager maybe. My wrist began to throb. I found out later it was fractured. I shuddered at what I'd just seen as I walked back to my office. I shuddered to think what life must be like for her. I shuddered from the cold and ate the sandwich, of course. That silly woman, she was about to throw a sandwich to the birds. It was in the bread bag whole. She didn't even crumble it into little pieces. That day, it was all I had. I had half a mind to go to the cafeteria that day, but it was an especially nice day. So I went to the park, and there she was again, the bread lady. And she had two, two bags, bags of, of bread. bread. One for the birds, and I set the other on the bench for the girl. The girl never showed up. She didn't come by for nearly a week. Maybe she thought the two bags were a trap. So I went back to just one, and I would take out a handful of bread and then set the bag on the bench and walk away to feed the birds. It was as if she wanted that bag stolen. Man, it was easy to steal it. She took it. Every, Every day, day, there'd be something different in the bag. Always a sandwich, of course. You know, at first, I thought that she thought that birds liked sandwiches. But then, I found an apple in the bag. 
Even a Snickers bar one day. One day. day the lady brought an old duffel bag and set it on the, on the bench and walked away to feed the birds. I couldn't believe it. That lady was giving away her stuff to that street kid, the kid who had broken her wrist. What a treasure. Treasure. Pretty clothes and soap and perfume and a mirror were all inside. She was just a scared girl. Her name was Rachel. She came by to thank me the next day. The next day, they were sitting on the park bench, talking as if they were friends or something. That girl is setting up that woman for a major fall. It's sad. Some people just have no common sense. Practice of hospitality is not just a task that we perform. It's a way of seeing things and people. A way of seeing things and people that changes everything. It looks very different. And it does not come easily to those who don't remember where they have come from or who have forgotten that what makes them the same is at least as important as the things that make them different. Or to those who have a hard time accepting or extending grace. Or those who cling too tightly to their own sense of entitlement. You know, it's interesting to me that early church historians tell us that one of the main things about the early church that caused both rulers in that day and common people to sit up and take notice and which gave the early church and its message the credibility that it had was the way they practiced hospitality. Christians in the first century often had a room in their home that was set aside for the stranger or visitor. In fact, there were Roman leaders at that time who told their officials that they ought to model the way they dealt with people based on what they saw in the lives of Christians because they realized how much more sense it made than the way they'd been used to interacting. It was a unique identifying mark of God's people. Which is why I was so intrigued to discover that embedded in the midst of one of the commandments that our church has often regarded as one of its unique identifying markers is this. Listen to this portion of the Sabbath commandment as it's recorded in Deuteronomy. On it you will not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your manservant or maidservant, nor your ox, your donkey, or any of your animals, nor the alien, that stranger that is within your gates so that they may rest as you do. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty and outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. Do you see it? Embedded in the midst of the fourth commandment is the practice of hospitality extended to all. That's the way it was supposed to be experienced and what was supposed to shape the rest of our lives that flow out of that commandment. It was for everyone to find rest and welcome, which we do because we have not forgotten the real truth about where we came from and how we got there. 
I wonder as we listen to the news today if it's likely that this is what the Christian world is known for in our world now. And for a people who see Sabbath as one of the main identifying marks, I wonder how carefully we have listened to the words and the intent of what is written in that commandment. It's not always easy for us to do this, to hold our shared stories tightly and our own interests loosely. It's never been an easy thing to do. It's sometimes not even easy to listen carefully to stories that we may not have lived through, but are stories that we dare not forget and dare not repeat. And it's also true that because our world is very complicated in a lot of ways, in order to practice this practice well, we may need to be wise as serpents and yet still harmless as doves. But as people who are described in Scripture, curiously enough, both as strangers and aliens in the world, and yet as the bride of Christ who together with the Spirit say, Come, we are invited In fact, we are commanded to enter into the fullness of the practice of hospitality in which everything depends upon our ability to see with the eyes of the one who is both host and guest to us and discover how different the rest of the world looks when we do so. The implications for us are huge. As Jesus said, it is by this that all men will know that you are my disciples. Lord, you have been host and guest to us, and we are grateful for your graciousness to us. We pray as we have the privilege of being that to each other, that you would help us not to miss where you are and to enjoy and embrace what you invite us to be a part of now. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.